Hi everybody, this is David Foreman and this is Rifki Stern. And we are here with Parsha Lab. It is Parsha to MR. Rifki, this is a uh, Parsha which we have covered now and then in some of our holiday courses, aptly enough because the Parsha speaks of, drumroll please, the holidays. Yes, MR contains Parshat Hamoadim, the section which kind of runs through all of the holidays pretty quickly. And in the middle of that section, it has something which seems decidedly unholiday-like. And that's what I want to talk with you about today. Um, we've got all the holidays we know and love. We've got Shabbos, we've got Pesach, we've got Shavuos, we've got Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. But right there, you know, if we play one of our favorite games, which one of these things is not like the other, Rifki, what do we have right slam bang in the middle of this that just doesn't seem much like a holiday at all? All right, I think I know what you're saying, and I actually think this is a particularly apt time to be talking about it. But what we have is we have the Omer offering that we bring right between Pesach and Shavuos. Exactly. We've got this Omer offering ceremony, uh, which we bring uh, between Pesach and Shavuos. We actually bring it on the day after the first day of Pesach. Mimacharat um, HaShabbat. Mimacharat HaShabbat. You know, the, the Omer whole situation is a little bit odd. What is this doing in the middle of Parshat Amoedim? It's a regular offering. It should belong with the other offerings. And somehow, you know, we we get a whole bunch of verses devoted to this. And I want to talk with you about what it's doing here um, in this holiday section and exactly how it is that we understand it. Now, this is a topic which we actually talked about in um, one of our really fantastic uh, holiday courses, one that's very near and dear to my heart. Well, we think it's fantastic, but (laughs) I'm allowed to say that. I have a personal affinity for this course. I think we did it uh, for Shavuos last year, if I'm not. uh, Was it Shavuos? Yes, it was Shavuos last year. Um, So you can kind of look at at that. We'll try to put it in the show notes uh, for you to kind of click on. Uh, But I want to touch on some points which we began to sort of tease in that holiday uh, course on Shavuos, but didn't really get to um, sort of explore the tendrils uh, all that much. So let me just jump in with you uh, without any further ado. Um, And uh, what I want to show you, Rifki, today is that we've got a kind of a classic case of a intertextual triangle here going on. And I know that sounds really scary and uh, kind of uh, intimidating. But um, let let me ask you, Rifki, what could I possibly mean uh, thinking about an intertextual triangle? Well, we have something called intertextual parallels, which is where you're two different texts, and there seem to be a bunch of both thematic and linguistic parallels between those two texts. And those parallels kind of shed light not only on the second story that recalls us back to the first story, but sometimes also when we go back to that first story, we can begin to think of it a little bit differently because of its parallels with the second story. What seems pretty interesting about the idea of a triangle is that now I think we're going to have three different stories, three different texts that the Torah is trying to sell us. Hey, when you look at this one, you have to look at it in the context of these other two, and they're all going to be sort of shedding light on one another. A sheds light on B, B sheds light on C, C sheds light on A, right? It's pretty cool how these, I'm excited, but I'm nervous every four minutes. It seems like there's going to be a lot happening here. Exactly. There's a lot happening for for one little modest podcast, but that's exactly (laughs) what we're going to try to do. We're going to take a look at an intertextual triangle, which is a trio of texts 
that seem to be intertextually related where, as Rifki, you so eloquently said, they all shed light on each other in a kind of stereo kind of way. And right at the, the uh, you know, sort of uh, center stage in that triangle is uh, this Omer text, which seems so out of place here in the holiday section. Okay, so let's take a look at this Omer text. Again, the function of the offering, Rifki, is what? Uh, what does the Omer do? It's an offering that's not just something you're supposed to give at some point in the year, but it actually has a halachic function. It changes things. How does it do that? So I think if I, if I remember correctly, what the Omer offering kind of does is we just went through Passover. We just went through sort of this break where we are not allowed to eat bread at all. We're not allowed to have any sort of chametz. And what the Omer offering does is it brings us out of that place and it brings us to the place where we're now allowed to engage with new fruit and new wheat, right? I think the Omer offering, Dafka, if I remember correctly, is supposed to be chametz. Well, actually, almost. <laughs> the the uh, the shtei alechem. Oh, that's uh, right. Okay, you, so it comes right after. Which comes during Shavuos is chametz. So let's just kind of leave chametz aside. But you're right in the sense that there are these two days, one after another, in which bread is sort of the the main focus, right? So in other words, we have Pesach and. The whole point of Pesach is that you're not supposed to eat chametz kind of bread. And uh, the whole point of the Omer offering has to do with another aspect of bread. Not the chametz aspect of bread. If it's on Pesach, you're already not eating chametz. You're eating unleavened bread. But it has to do with something else. And that is that it's matir chadash, which is to say that allows you to eat from the new crop of grain until Pesach time, until the Omer is brought, all of the grain that was harvested cannot yet be used. What allows you to use the new grain is the bringing of the Amr offering. Right. Um, and even today, by the way, there will be people that, even without offerings, right, until this time of year, until the time when the Omer would be brought, they're makbid on yashan, so to speak, which is to say that they will only eat old grain. Old grain doesn't mean that it's moldy and rotten and gross. Old grain just means that it was harvested before the times of the Omer. And the Omer is what's matir, the Omer is what gives us the ability halachically to be able to eat the new grain. And all of this is really right here in these verses in uh, Vayikra 23. Um, when we look at these, though, the, the question is, so it, it just seems like a sort of magical hodgepodge of laws. There's this random law having to do with this Omer offering that once you bring it from the, the, from the barley, it's going to allow you to eat this new grain. And it just seems like just a bunch of, of random laws that don't really mean anything and, and why is there any logic behind it? So I think if we sort of trace this intertextual triangle, we'll get a sense of the logic. So I'm going to give you uh, two or three aspects of uh, Leviticus 23, and we're going to play a little game, one of our favorite games over here in Aleph Beta Land, Where Have We Heard All This Before? And we'll see if we can add up these uh, different aspects of Omer, and, and you tell me is there, if there's another Parsha in the Torah, another section of Torah that this seems to kind of remind you of. Okay, so here we are. Uh, the first thing is the Omer. The Omer is this unusual term. It's a measurement of, of grain, probably about as much grain as like a single serve portion for, for a regular human being. And it says that when you come into the land over here in, in Leviticus 23, verse 10, when you come into the land that I'm going to give you, and when you harvest the grain, you should bring an Omer, 
which just again means this this amount of grain. Reshit Ktsirchem al Kohen. You bring the beginning of your harvest to the Kohen. So element number one in our little game of where have we heard these words before is going to be just the designation Omer, which is a very rare designation. So where's the other time we have Omer? So just as a hint, the other time we have Omer in the Torah comes along with the very next idea we have in this Omer offering, which is the idea of the Sabbath, and specifically the notion of tomorrow associated with the Sabbath. Look at the very next verse, 2311. The Kohen waves this offering, the Omer offering, to be pleasing. And of course, it's a strange way of speaking about Pesach, and, and you know everyone kind of tries to figure this out. What this means over here is the word Shabbat in this context seems to refer to the first day of Passover. It's a very roundabout way of referring to the first day of Passover. The day after Shabbat doesn't really mean Sunday. It means the day after the first day of Pesach. That's how at least the Pharisees understand. This is one of these famous debates between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the question is like, uh, okay, so where else uh, do we have the word Omer mentioned in the Torah, where Sabbath is also an issue, and particularly tomorrow's associated with Sabbaths. Over here, you bring the this Omer offering on the morrow of the Sabbath. So that is going to be uh, element number two. Element number three will actually take us to the culmination of the Omer process, because what happens when you bring this Omer is you're going to start counting, and the Omer is going to culminate, or the counting of the Omer is going to culminate in the next holiday. It was a Shavuot where we bring two loaves of bread, but we bring two loaves of bread, lechem tnufashtayin. So where else do you have the notion of two loaves of bread? So Rivki, I'm going to give you those three things together, and, and, and just to review, element number one is Omer, element number two is the morrow of Sabbath, Sabbath and morrow, and element number three is two loaves of bread, and where is the only other time you ever have all these elements kind of coming together in the Torah? Okay, so because I, you know, I, I've spent enough time with you that I actually, I would never know this on my own, but I actually do know this answer, right? It is in the laws, uh, right after we left Mitzrayim, the first set of laws that God really gave to us was about the man. God commanded to us that we should be eating man, and the measurement given to us for the man was omer, la gogolet, that it was going to be an omer per person. And then, of course, we have the laws of what happens um, on Shabbat. On Shabbat, we're not going to be gathering in man, but instead, the day before Shabbat, we're going to be given a double portion, right? Which, of course, is reminiscent both of this idea of mimacharat ha-Shabbat, and it's reminiscent of lechem tunofashtayim, that it's going to be this double portion of the man slash the omer. Okay, good. And, and Rifki's exactly right. The only other time you have this, the only other time you have Omer is with the man. It was the Omer was the amount of single serve portion that everyone get would get from the manna. Um, and you were supposed to just gather that. You weren't supposed to hog it and gather more. And by the way, Rifki, if you think about the notion of no hogging with the manna, if you go back into the Omer, isn't it interesting? Look at the laws that come right after the Omer. What does that remind you of with no hogging? Right. The the laws right after the Omer also seemingly completely random in these laws that relate to holidays are the laws of Peah and Leket. They're agricultural laws about sharing your field with people who have less than you. So people who 
who don't have their own fields, you should leave a corner for them. You should make sure that when things fall, you leave it for them. You should leave it for the for the ani and the ger, for people who, who aren't as fortunate as you are. And in the same way, in the man, you're not supposed to be greedy. You're not supposed to overtake. And if you do try to overtake, God doesn't even let you, doesn't give you that option. In the sense that what happens if you try and overtake with the man? It gets destroyed. Magically, if you would collect more than the Omer, if you actually look at the story of Man, and I take you now into Exodus 16, verse uh, 16 and 17. So it says, Zadavar Shersivashem, this is what God commands, Liktu Mimenu Ishlafiachlau. You should gather just what you need to eat, Omer Lagulgolet, an Omer per head. And then it says, Vayasu Kain Bene Israel, Vayilkutu Hamar Bevamamit. And then everyone went collecting. And some people collected more than an Omer, and some people collected less. And guess what happened? Vayimodu Ba Omer, they then went home and they measured it against their Omer measurements. if Hamar Bevamamit. Didn't matter how much you collected. If you collected more, you came home and you waited, and it was exactly an Omer. You collected less, you came home and you waited, it was exactly an Omer. God took care of us and actually made sure that everybody had enough to eat. And isn't it fascinating, as you just pointed out, that immediately after the laws that sort of echo the manna, this Omer offering, we have a similar kind of argument that God is making to us, that when we go into the land, we have to be careful in our fields to make sure that everybody has enough to eat. And by the way, Rifki, it's the same language. Look at that. Look yeah. at the verb. So it says, leke ketzirchla lo and then if you go mm-hmm. back to man, it says liktu mimenu, and then it says v'yilkatu mm-hmm. hamarbet. It's clearly the same sort of idea. It's interesting, right? Not just linguistically, but thematically. You know, no one leaving over uh, produce on the field is going to starve. They have enough. Maybe you want a little more, but you have plenty. And the same thing, God is saying with the man, everyone will have enough for what they actually need. Mm-hmm. So it, it really feels like, if you just look at this intertextual connection, that if you sort of had to sum it up, there is a certain rhyme or reason to Omer. The Omer offering seems to be connected to the manna almost seems to be a way of remembering the manna. And now we might understand what it's doing in this holiday section. It just so happens that it's right between Passover and Shavuot, right after Passover and Shavuot. And if you think about where this comes from, if what's happening is that this is a law that's based upon our experience of the manna, well, when did we get the manna? Right, the manna is after the exodus itself, right? And of course, the manna is right after the exodus itself. And it's way before we received the laws on uh, Sinai, which is what we associated with Shavuot. It's interesting also, we macharat ha-Shabbat, which is the day after Passover, the day after the first day of Passover, and also the manna is right after the Exodus. Yes. So it's the food that we got to eat after we kind of used up our matzah, so to speak. So you eat your matzah, and then the next day, bang, uh, you've got this Omer offering, which is reminding you of the manna. So it just fits in chronologically. Okay, so now for the triangle, there's another section which seems to be intertextually connected to both of these. And I want to take you, Rifki, into the book of Joshua. Wow. Yep. We don't spend so much time there. I'm excited. We don't spend so much time there. So if you can just kind of open up a your handy-dandy Tanakh or Safaria or whatever you have in front of you to Joshua chapter 5. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to look and see what happens as the people of Israel come into the land. Remember, they're eating manna this whole time, right? Right. They're, for 40 years, they're eating manna. So when does that stop? What, what, what happens? So they're coming to the land. It turns out that... 
for the 40 years in the desert, there hasn't really been the opportunity for people, for new babies being born, people to circumcise themselves. So what happens is that the people stop and everyone uh, circumcises themselves as they're coming into the land. And it seems to be a certain kind of year. It seems to be Passover time of year. So let's read chapter 5. So they go and they all are recovering from this, this operation, this circumcision operation. And at that point, God says to Yoshua, Today I have taken off from you, folded off from you, the disgrace of Mitzrayim from upon you. And the idea is, is that now you've you've raised yourself up from the Egyptians, you've entered into the covenant, you've left behind Egypt for good in entering the circumcision covenant. And they called the place Gilgal, a play off of Galoti at Cherbet Mitzrayim. They called the place Gilgal. And they then went and encamped in Gilgal. Now you're going to see this is the beginning of Gilgal. Gilgal is going to be a very important place in Tanakh later on in the book of Samuel. Samuel, where Samuel is going to go and bring Saul to coronate him and, 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 and to renew the kingship. It's an important place, but this is the beginning of Gilgal. And now, Rivki, to play our little intertextual game, if we think about our other two pieces of the triangle here, right. the manna and the omer, is there anything in either of them that reminds you just a hair of this place name, Gilgal? Yes. So I don't see the connection um, explicitly with omer, with the story in our Parsha, but I do see a connection between the man, right? Because the yes. man is called omer la gulgolet. Yes. So, and also, Rifki, from your uh, perusal of biblical Hebrew, right, that sort of gimel lamed, gimel lamed thing, that's not like an everyday occurrence, right? It's a matter of fact, when you thought Omer got la gulgolet, you didn't even know what gulgolet was. You probably had to look in the English or look right. at one of the commentators to figure out that gulgolet really means a head, Omer per head, and Omer per skull. It's not like an, a common word. But over here, it seems to have this very strong echo in this place named Gilgal. Okay, so let's continue. So here they are in Gilgal. And what do they do, Rifki? Vayasu et ha Pesach. Right? So we have oh, that holiday look what connection. Time of year it is. We've got that holiday connection. So it's that first day of Pesach, which means what's going to be the next day, Rifki? That's going to be the next day. So anyway, they do the Pesach on the 14th day of the Chodesh, right on the outskirts of Jericho. Now look what happens. Vayochlu ma'avur ha'aretz. They now eat from the very first time wow. from produce from the land of Israel. Because they're not allowed to do it until after the Omer. Look at the next words. Wow. On the next day, the day after and the Pesach, they're eating, Rifki, the very first chadash, the very first new grain. The grain that's so new that they've never tasted this grain is not just this year's new grain. It's the new grain in history. It's the first time they've ever tasted the grain of the land of Israel. Look at the next words. Matzot v'kalui They eat it, matzah, and they eat kalui, which means roasted grain, on that very day. Rifki, where else do you have those words? So, so in our parsha in Emor, we are told lechem v'kalui, right? It's lechem and not matzot, but that word kalui is there as well, that you are not allowed to eat lechem v'kalui, and here, mimacharata pesach, they are eating matzot and kalui. Exactly. And specifically, if you go back to our uh, this week's parsha Emor, in, in Vayikra 23, you're going to hear what the Omer says is that 
you can't eat the new grain until that day. But the new grain, the words for the new grain are sort of evocative. Lechem the Kali the Carmel, Lotachlu, you can't eat bread and you can't eat roasted grain. Ad until that very day. That was Leviticus 23. Fast forward into Joshua. What are the Israelites doing? They're eating from the grain of the land, Mimachrat Pesach, on the day after Pesach, that Omer sounding day, Matzot V'Kalui, of course, it's Passover, so they're eating matzah, not bread, and they're eating that roasted grain, on that very day. They're tasting the very first fruits of the land. And look at the next verse, Rifki, verse 12 in Joshua 5. It's that Shabbos language. And that's that Shabbos language, the man. Again. The man finally rested, right? The man, which is how we learned about rest in the first place. The very beginning of Shabbos for us came when we understood that on Friday you took a double portion and on Sabbath there wasn't going to be any more manna. Now the manna rested and it rested forever. We never saw manna again because now we had food from the land. And so what happens, Rivki, is that when you look at, you see the beautiful intertextual triangle here, you have Leviticus. Leviticus 23, which is telling you about Omer. And the Omer in Leviticus 23 is reminding you of something in Exodus and foreshadowing something in Joshua, right? It's reminding you of the manna and it's foreshadowing the moment that we will come into the land and we will taste from the very first fruits of the land. And I think if, if you let ask me, let me just triangle, Let me just clarify this for myself for one second. What happens when we, when we eat from the Omer what happens when the Omer is Matir Chadash? The Omer lets us suddenly eat this new food, right? That in Joshua, right, 40 years later, when Joshua is actually entering the land with the people of Israel, that is the first time that we actually implement this, that we actually eat Chadash. We actually eat this new grain, the first of the new grain of of Israel when we finally enter that land. Exactly. And so I think what you're struggling with is, okay, so what does it all mean? Right, that's and I think exactly what it, what, what it sort of all means is, is that the Torah, so to speak, God looking into the future says in Leviticus, it says, look, I know I'm going to bring you into the land. I know I'm going to give you this new grain. And when I do, the manna is going to stop. But right. when the manna stops, it can't be forgotten. What is it that's Matir Chadash? It's not that you snap your fingers and you do some voodoo magic and now you can eat the new grain. You've got to remember something to eat the new grain. You have to remember how it took care of you for 40 years. And you have to understand that in the land, even though you're doing the planting, right. God, I'm doing the rain and I'm giving you the land and this grain is coming from me and I'm still taking care of you. Right. And, and therefore, the same way that I took care of you the first time and when I took care of you, since I was giving you the food, God says, it was subject to the way I do things, which is take care of the poor and make sure there's enough for everybody. So you have to understand in the land, you're not the one in charge. You're not the one who makes this whole thing. And it's all capital that you've created there to dispose of as you see fit and the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And who cares about everybody? No, it's still coming from me, which means you still take care of the poor, which is why in the Omer laws, immediately after that, you hear about the laws of taking care of the poor. You got to leave some over for them on the field the same way I did it in the manna. What allows you to eat the new grain is the memory of the manna. If you can't remember the time when I fed you and the idea that as you go into the land, it's just a seamless extension of that. 
when I'm taking care of you through the land. If you can't remember that, then you don't have a right to the land. Robert Foreman, I think that's a really, really beautiful idea. It's very easy for people, once they are in charge of sort of providing for themselves, once they are planting their own crops, once they are, are growing their own food and, and making their own bread, to look at the bread that sits on their table and say, I made that. I did that. Look what I've created, right? The same way it's easy for us today to go into a grocery store, buy some food, put it on a stove, make some elaborate meal and say, wow, look what I did. Let me, let me put it on Instagram for everyone to admire my skills, right? And it's very easy at that point to forget about God, to say, yeah, yeah, God provided for us in, in the Midbar. And that was awesome. You know, he gave us that man and that was that was so, you know, thoughtful. And he really, he really, you know, did us a solid. But now, you know, now I do it. And I think right. what you seem to be saying, Reformin, is that God is giving us this little nudge of you're forgetting something. You forget that I'm still involved. You're forgetting that now you're right. You're doing a little more. You had done nothing and now you're doing something, but you're not doing it alone. We're a partnership. And if you're not remembering that we're a partnership, that's how you can say, why would I give to that guy? That guy didn't work any land. Why would I give to him? I'm the one who worked my land. Why, why should I share? No, God says, you got stuff because I helped you. You have a responsibility to help everyone else now. I, th I think that's, that's right. a really and beautiful it, message. And it's, it's kind of the basis, I think, of regulation of unfettered capitalism. That was the logic behind the sort of Ayn Randian unfettered capitalism with no regulation whatsoever is it's all mine. I did this all and therefore it's a level playing field and I'm sorry if there's not enough for the other people, but on what moral grounds can you take away and redistribute wealth? And therefore government involvement, right, so to speak, is, is, is prima facie illegitimate. And what God is doing is countering that and saying, no, this is a capitalistic system, but it's regulated capitalism. There is a moral obligation to take care of the poor because I, God, retain a stake in this. I fed you the manna and I'm feeding you from the land and you're partners with me. It's not just something you're doing by yourself. And if we're a partnership, God says, then I set some of these rules too. And the same values that animated the manna, there's enough for everybody. And you rest and you take a break and you don't just go collecting, collecting, collecting. And, and, and there's no value for rest. There are certain values that are God-given values that no, it's not just all about what you collect. There's a time to just take a breath and, and, and give a break to everybody and there's no collecting today and, there, and there's a sense of faith. And then you make sure there's enough for everybody. And those are godly values that says, look, you know, I'm not coming to you from nowhere when I give you those values. I'm coming to you because I'm a stakeholder along with you. And that's what's important to me. Uh, Very so, that's really that's really yeah. beautiful. Yeah, well, thank you. So, um, if you want to take a look at where these ideas started, again, go back into our Shavuot course. There, if you look at it, you'll actually be able to take the thread back a little bit further. We go all the way back into the Exodus experience to uh, the the earliest roots of the manna and the Omer in the Exodus itself with Pharaoh under our uh, the the collecting not of. Of, of, of wheat, but the collecting of straw for bricks. Uh, and that also adds a fascinating new dimension to this whole picture. So if you get a chance, take a look at that series on Shavuot last year. And of course, we'll put a link to that in our show notes and a couple other videos that I think are also really relevant and, and important to understanding sort of the larger implications of this idea. I'm also thinking about the, the AKEV video in which we talk about yep. sort of appreciating our creators. So thank you so much, Arif Foreman. This was a really fascinating, amazing discussion. Um, of course, as always, we love to 
to hear feedback, please email us, info at alephbeta.org. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. Please rate and review us on iTunes. And uh, and please subscribe on Alephbeta if, if you, you want to support like our work. Podcast, even if you just feel like these guys, that every week they come out there and, and they're kind of crummy, but at least yeah, they're, they're sweet and they're nice. Yeah, we're so trying, rate guys. us anyway. All right. Thank you so much, Everett Foreman. We'll see you next week. Thank you.